This is the Angry Birds Bird Minute, sponsored by Angry Birds for their 15th anniversary, where we tell you all about a cool bird that may or may not be angry. This week's bird is the bee hummingbird. The bee hummingbird is the world's smallest bird. Found only in Cuba, this petite pollinator only averages about five and a half centimeters long and weighs barely more than two grams. Their nests are only an inch wide and their eggs are the size of a coffee bean. They get their name from their small size, which results in them often being mistaken for bees, and the sound their tiny wings make as they beat between 80 and 200 times a second. Like many other hummingbirds, the majority of the bee hummingbird's diet consists of nectar that it sips from flowers with its skinny beak and long tongue. Though, it will also nab small insects or spiders, too. But are they angry? On a scale of 1 to angry, we rate the bee hummingbird as tiny but mighty. This is Wild Green Streams. I'm Rhett. I'm Curtis. I'm Io. And with us today, we have plant professor, host of the Planthropology podcast, friend of the show, and now author, it's Dr. Vikram Baliga. Vikram, your new book is called Plants to the Rescue, the plants, trees, and fungi that are solving some of the world's biggest problems. How do spinners send emails? They type really carefully and really slowly. Uh, <laughs> in general, lots of mistakes. Their, their emails are just grammatically horrendous me and spinach have that in common turns out <laughs> what energy they guess the signature that they are they like warmly cheers all the best sincerely yeah do they but, seem a little nervous like too many exclamation points at the end yeah trying real hard to please you know with best regards warmest regards all the best yeah you know so this is this is not a joke though this is this is a joke but it also isn't vikram I'm as confused as 90% of our listeners are. How do spinners send emails? Yeah, so there have been some researchers at a couple of different places. Uh, MIT is notorious for doing weird stuff like this, but different places have been uh, kind of experimenting with this and looking to use crops like spinach and other field-grown plants to look for environmental problems, soil problems, uh, toxicity in water, and all of those different things. So they're putting um, these little carbon nanotubules in the leaves of spinach, which are designed to absorb and detect different compounds. So whether it's uh, petroleum-based products in the soil or high concentrations of a pesticide or, or whatever else, high temperatures even, they take stuff up through the roots, water, nutrients, and sometimes some of the bad stuff. And then it's sort of detected by these nanotubules. It sends a message to a nearby relay station. And that information is sent to researchers saying, look, we've got a problem in this field. Either there's no water or there's something in the water or there's all kinds of other problems. So there's really cool like nanotechnology that they're using in sort of indicator crops to see what's going on in the environment. Ooh. And can these indicators distinguish between the different types of disturbances or is it just like something is wrong and you don't know exactly what or are there different signals for like no water versus like, I don't know, heavy metals in the water or something? I, I think we're still kind of early in this. And my understanding okay. is that it's it's a lot of it is just, oh, no, there's a problem. Come see what's going on. But the types of problems they are sort of designed to detect are fairly limited. So if they get a message, they know, okay, it's one of these five things we can mm. go look for. That makes sense. 
And just to backtrack a little, the book is this beautifully illustrated, very clearly written, not story, but like reference that you can use to see all kinds of, it frames all kinds of different problems in the world and the way in which plants or fungi are helping us to solve those problems. So it's like, a, it's it's really good for all ages. It was, it was really, really pretty to look at. What was the process of working with like an illustrator to try to make all these science concepts come to life? It was really, it was really pretty interesting. So it was an interesting situation where I was approached about this book. They, the publisher I'm working with uh, or worked with Neon Squid is part of Macmillan International, which is you know, one of the biggest publishers on the on the planet. They're a huge one, but Neon Squid specifically is a newer imprint and they do nonfiction for kids. And they sort of had the idea for the book laid out. They had already found the illustrator actually, and they had the first couple ideas down and they were looking for a plant guy to author it in a way that would be, I guess, appropriate for eight to 12-ish year olds. And so they found me, I think on like TikTok and they found my podcast and reached out and it was kind of a cool experience because they had the basic idea, but I got to figure out, okay, what stories do we want to tell? And then I had to come up with, and, and this was not something, you know, this is my first sort of run at publishing. I'd never done something like this before outside of academic publishing. And so they were like, okay, so come up with the concepts. We'll tell you how many words we need per page. And, you know, you write that and then you tell us what you want the pages to look like. I'm like I, don't, I don't know. Just put plants on it. I don't know. <laughs> and so uh, I got to come up with based on the different stories we were trying to tell sort of the basic framework for what I wanted the illustrations to look like. And I got on the internet and found reference images for what was in my brain. And then our illustrator, Brian Lambert, I sent him like these really rudimentary text files of my rambling stream of consciousness thoughts of what I thought pages should look like. And he would send stuff back and it would be like exactly what I had on my, in my head and better. And it was incredible. And so uh, it was very, it was a very interesting sort of relationship of trying to get what's in my coconut in the illustrations, because I'm very much not an illustrator. And so I just had some rough ideas, but he was he was incredible to work with and did such a good job on it. That's so cool. And so this is a whole new you've done lots of, you know, your podcast and TikTok and other things. How was this process? Like, was it a different way of trying to frame the information for a new format of like education? Or was it pretty like, oh, I can just reskin some of the stuff I've done before. Or did it require like a different way of thinking about things of how to best use the medium of a book? You know, a bit of both, honestly. There was a lot of discovery, I think, that I had to do through the process of like, okay, how do I take... For one, it was for kids, right? And, and mm -hmm. I teach college students. Sometimes that's not that different. But, <laughs> and I say that kind of as a joke, but the, the truth is a lot of the stories that ended up in here are things that came up in our discussions in my intro horticulture class, like mm -hmm. questions that students would ask me or things that they thought were interesting as we were going through our lectures, like, oh, you know what? If they think it's interesting at 18, I bet a kid that's 10 would also think this is kind of a cool deal. And so that's where some of the ideas come from. But I, I think it was very challenging to think about using, and it was a good exercise, I'll say too, of using very like accessible, inclusive language and figuring out what's important about the story we're trying to tell. And then how do I approach that in a way that it, anyone could understand whether you're eight years old or 80 years old. Like I wanted everyone who reads it to get something out of it, but 
what was really useful for me is I have a, a seven-year-old son. He was sick. He just turned six when I started working on it. So I would write stuff and then I would just like read it to him or bounce oh, it off of him. You have a built-in focus group. I, I did. <laughs> I, I would be like, does this make any sense to you? And half the time he'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, back to the, back to the computer, writing some more. But then eventually we threw this kind of back and forth. We eventually, it, it was really cool getting the almost write it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in like sort of a, a roundabout way. And it was really cool getting to like ha- get live feedback on how I was doing with it. Is he credited as one of the editors of the book? Uh, I, he should be. I don't think he is, but he should be. He'll be he in the next get some, one. This he can get theft. some royalties from it, start to build up, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be making more off the book than I am at some point. <laughs> what was a fact that he found particularly interesting out of it? Like, what was he most into out of the book? Explain it like I'm six. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to look through some of the topics because there were a couple that he really liked. He really liked some of the ones about pollinators. He, he really loves animals and ins- mm-hmm. well, we're getting there with the insects for a while. It was like, if there was a fly in the house, we were going to have to move, mm-hmm. but lately we're getting him more into caring about the smaller wildlife or smaller animal friends. So he really liked some of the pollinator stuff about bees and butterflies. He really liked, there was one spread in here about glow in the dark plants that he thought was really cool because I, I don't know. It's just one of those things that I think is very eye catching for a kid to say, what do you mean the plants glow in the dark? He's got like glow in the dark stickers, like planets and stars and stuff all over his room. I'm glad that hasn't gone out of style. Nope. Yeah. There are, there are probably 200 of them in his room. And so he loves like glow in the dark stuff. So he thought that was cool. And he also liked, and and one of my favorites as well was one about living bridges and how peoples across the world, specifically in India, in this case would take roots and branches and things from different types of trees and use them to make living bridges across rivers and streams and walkways and things like that. And he thought that was a really cool story, which I'm, I'm with him on that. That was, that was one of my, favorite i think finds as i was researching for this book how long would that take to make a lifetime in some cases you know they would get these mm-hmm. fig trees and things like strangler figs that have these big long like gnarly root systems and they would train them across waterways and over you know depressions in the land and they make living walking bridges out of them the best time to plant a bridge was 20 years ago time is now the time is now so uh, the, something else that I also thought was really interesting was the glow-in-the-dark plants. So how do those work? So there's a couple of different ways they're looking at it. But right now they're working on some genetic breeding and some genetic work, taking some of the genes and the uh, luminescent cells that you would find in phytoplankton or in uh, different types of squid that can you know bioluminesce and actually working them into plant systems. And so there is, you know, you've, I think a lot of people have seen videos of people walking down the beach and dragging their feet through the water and it lighting up with some of these luminescent phytoplankton and things like that. I've done but, that in person. Oh, that's so cool. It was so cool. I'm, I'm a little jealous, actually. That's it, really was, cool. it was like you would, we would stomp on the sand and it would like light up but it was too dim to like any of the like cameras phones whatever was like not enough to pick it up so i was like tell it when i would tell people afterwards i'm like you just have to believe me like i don't have proof (laughs) like just like the olden days before we had you know could take pictures of everything i'm like it was really cool trust me bro 
Trust me. It was so <laughs> sick. It was amazing. It was like fireworks on the ground. Yeah. That's so cool. It's usually the last place you want fireworks. <laughs> you know, it's really, it, that was really great about it because it really mixed it up. It kept it fresh and interesting. You were like, oh, we in danger. No, it's just the phytoplankton. Ha ha ha. And you laugh it off and continue on your beach walk. And then everything's Insta- on fire. Yeah. yeah. Instead of blowing up. It's a much better option. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they're they're using some of these traits and, and actually putting them into plant cells. And they found different ways that I, I believe in one of the studies I read, they would charge up a plant just like you would charge up a glow in the dark, well, star mm-hmm. or planet in your room. And they would get some output from it for as much as an hour after, which is not a lot of light, but the fact that they can turn a plant like a, a ficus or a, a monstera or something into a, like a lamp for your house is incredible and i think in in further studies they're looking at putting or figuring out how they can get some of these more tactile response phosphorescence like you would get in those phytoplankton so as a plant would move around or it would be moved in by the wind or something it could light up and glow and sort of charge itself through kinetic energy rather than energy from the sun Mm-hmm. I want it's it. So I want it. I'll take, I'll take 20. Imagine walking around your house at night and you have to like go to the bathroom or get water from the kitchen. You just tap your local, you know, your Monstera plant to light, turn on. So then it's like, you know, not the harsh light of the kitchen to like, you know, ruin your night vision. But then you could just be like, oh, yes, just a little, a little plant night light. That's so it, cool. Even That's better, so cool. too, because right now, if you want a light, you have to kind of fumble around to find the light switch and like bang into cabinets and things. But in this case, while you're stumbling around in the dark, you'll run into your plant and turn it on. Yeah, it'll be easy. Yeah, it saves you the step. The the best solution for darkness. It's great. I think so. It kind of reminds me in a weird way of the movie Her, uh, but not in anything to do with the plot, just the background of the movie. Something that struck me was that it's in the future and like it, they have like unattainably incredible or I guess now imaginably incredible technology in it but it doesn't look cyberpunk it looks like it's made out of wood and like natural materials and i thought i don't know if that was deliberate but i think that if i had made a movie like that the reason that i would have done that is because it's a vision of the future in which we've become so advanced that we look like nature again solar punk yeah solar solar punk (laughs) I, i dig that actually that's cool that's my new aesthetic now. This is the. Oh, I didn't thing. make it up. It's a genre of. It. Okay. It's like within hope punk, where it's like, what if not dystopia? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I, I feel like her is very cleanly hope punk. If that, if that's, uh, if I'm using that word correctly. And that's that's honestly sort of a through line in this book of that our technology and a lot of the ways that some of our plant tech and the research that's going on is headed in that direction. Like, how do we better merge our society and? you know, do the things we like to do with being more conscious about the world around us. And, you know, whether it's making sort of pollinator highways that go from city to city and throughout cities so they can find where they're going or using bioluminescent trees to light our streets instead of, you know, harsh LED Mm -hmm. lights. So we don't damage, you know, migratory patterns or different things for insects and birds and reptiles and everything else, just different wildlife. And I think that, 
you know, there are some shining examples we talk about, like Singapore does a lot of great work in green infrastructure and uh, green buildings. And, and I think as we go forward, if we're going to do the thing where we marry what we want to do and need to do as humans with wanting to have a planet to live on, those are the directions we need to be thinking. And that's, uh, this book was intended to be really hopeful. Like we don't really shy away from some of the scary things like, you know, climate change and uh, food insecurity and pollution and all that. But, you know, I will, I would love for a 10 year old to read this and think, Oh man, that is some research I would love to do. That's, that's something I could see myself loving and learning and working in and spending my life thinking about. And that was the whole goal with this, this project. It was kind of for seven-year-old Vikram too. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I was I was a little plant nerd. Uh, I have a picture of myself about three years old, like judging a corn plant, you know, in my granddad's backyard. <laughs> and you know, I I loved being outside and I loved nature. And you know, when I was a kid, it was some of these newer technologies either didn't exist or we didn't. I I, I had no access to them. Or I didn't have good access to learning about them. And I I want everyone who reads this book to sort of get excited about plant science and be hopeful about our future. I love that. I think that the excitement and the hope is so important because a lot of that can sometimes be lost, especially when you're talking about stuff that's like kind of as a joke, but also not really of like trying to save the world and like climate change. Like it can, it can be so easy to get, you know, bogged down, but it's like you're not going to convince anyone to help if you present it as something that is hopeless. But if you say, actually, there is progress and actually you can make a difference, people are like, oh, I want to be able to because like people want to help. But if they think they can't, then they're going to be like, oh, why bother? But like stuff that a lot of times like this cool stuff that people are doing, the public doesn't always just know about until we have fantastic books such as this come out and they can look at it and be like, whoa, this is like really cool. I want to like get more involved. This is going to sound somewhat off topic, and it kind of is, but kind of isn't. You use the term bogged down, and it got me thinking, why is that negative? And same with swamped. Swamped and bogged down are on a very similar... Mired. A mire is a wetland also. Anti-ecosystem. What is this anti-wetland? Anti-wetland sentiment. Stop using anti-wetland language. Yeah. We need to start saying tar-pitted. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't think we need any positive connotations for tar pits. I'm in a, yeah. I'm in a, I'm in a very pleased to see megafauna kind of vibe right now. <laughs> Man, stuck I just in the so... mud is even is even a similar vibe. We get, it's the same phrase over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of I got you know bogged down in all these emails, I'm tar pitted in all these emails because also that's like <laughs> endless escape. But where it's where it's like. Maybe bogs, because like bogs can like preserve things. So maybe it's like if you want to remember something, like instead of memory of an elephant, memory of a bog. We bog. could workshop this. Maybe like maybe it. we could flip it. Maybe uh, if you're out hiking in the woods and you go through like a really repetitive, boring set of you know area of the trail, like maybe it's alongside a road or something. You say, like, "Man, I'm really officed right now." Yeah. <laughs> See, that feels really, more right. Yeah. I'm so swamped by it right now means I am one with nature. <laughs> yeah. You are so immersed. I'm having a great time. I'm yeah. absolutely immersed. Fully self-actualized. It's, it's the total body experience of the smell of the swamp, the thick air, the uh, noises. Swamp thing. You can swamp taste. Thing, swamp, swamp thing achieved it. He is the most swamped out of any of us. <laughs> you were the... Happiest frog in that cranberry bog. Absolutely. So that was a good tangent. I think we need to get on this right away. I agree. 
I'm making a note to work on this later. <laughs> <laughs> Wild yeah, green we, memes can do it. If anyone can do it, it's this yeah. group. We, we need to get our meme messaging machine working on this. Yeah, meme machine. <laughs> so you mentioned before we started recording, actually, that you were working on some other books now. Are any of those kind of a sequel to this one? Or are they very you know, different? Or how, how are you thinking about those books? Some some of both. And, you know, I don't want to scoop myself too much on it. Oh, but sure. like, there are some things that I think that are that I would like to tie off of this book and talk about more of some of the individual plants we talk about, like we, we talk about forestry and trees and stuff. And I'd like to explore more the sort of history of where trees come from and what we do with them and how the services they sort of provide to the planet. And you kind of you know, Think about the life of trees and then just some other random things that have not nothing to do with plants, but less to do with plants. Uh, my So my wife is also a science educator, or she has been for a long time. She worked for years at a science museum as an education director. So we've kind of started working on a little project together. And so we've got some fun stuff going on. I, I think you have a question that you wanted to get in there about yes. the prickly pears. I did. And I just, I was just so distracted by the anti-wetland language. <laughs> I'm like, it has to be sad. I'm sorry. sorry. No, it did. No, it did. And as soon truth. as we, as soon as we stop recording on this, I'm going to be making that meme. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, <laughs> Memes, but, plural. This yes. Seems to be a trend. It's going to be, if it doesn't take over like invasive kudzu vine, we've done something wrong. <laughs> So one of the things I was looking through the book is talking about prickly pears and like turning them into kind of like a, a plastic like material, which is so cool because I've worked with um, prickly pears before in doing they were used as like a model ecosystem. And also, I know they have the scale insects, the little cochineal mm -hmm. um, insects that live on them that create red dyes that are in a lot of different products. So I have no and people can eat the fruit. So I'm like, oh, I know all of these applications of this, but this is a new one that I hadn't heard of. So like, how did they? discover this where some people farmers just like hey what if we did this this would be really cool or was someone was like you know like this would be i bet that cactus would make like a really good plastic bag because like, <laughs> instead of like actual you know plastic like how did they come about this just just sitting i, I like to think of someone just sitting out in the desert staring at a prickly pear like what if it was bags what if and... it was bags <laughs> it's like the opposite of what we Gross. were talking about earlier. This is like um hopeful dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the it's like the jokes of everyone whenever you see like an image of a pristine landscape and somebody comments like they could put a Walmart there. <laughs> <laughs> I bet this plant could be plastic if we tried hard. And uh, like, I, it's already plastic. basically bags of water, but what if we like made it for us? You know? <laughs> like what if? Well, so there were some uh, Mexican researchers that were working on this, and I, I actually don't know where the idea came from. It's really interesting, but I think they were doing research just on the cacti in general and found some compounds in the pads that could, under certain circumstances or with certain treatments, be polymerized. And so what they would do is actually grind them up and extract juices and different compounds out of it and run it through what I believe is a proprietary process. And they could actually turn it into a fairly durable bioplastic. And I don't know how far they've gotten with this research, but there's so many ways that we can make biodegradable packaging and from bags to clamshells to whatever else. I think something like a prickly pear that is such an aggressive plant and in some places, an invasive plant, it's like, okay, well, we could go harvest these things and replace 
some percentage of our petroleum-based plastics and has something that, you know, when it ends up in a landfill that it's fine or you can throw it in your compost pile. Like I think those kinds of technologies are so exciting because then we start to think about, again, some stuff like some of our invasive species in different ways. Like, okay, what other use could we get out of this? Yes, it's a problem now, but what if we harvested it from places where it's an invasive and turn it into products we can Mm, use? We're kind of- coming at multiple problems in the same sort of way. I think that's such an exciting piece of science and piece of research. Yeah, that's and like making an incentive, an additional incentive to remove the invasive species, not just like this is a thing that is taking over and needs to be removed, but like we could not just like remove it and like throw it away somewhere, but repurpose it. Because yeah, I worked with um, Prickly Pear in their native range, which is in the States. And then I did a, a study abroad when I went to Kenya and this same Prickly Pear was there that had been invasive. And it was a problem because, you know, nothing ate it except like the plant, but the baboons would like eat the seeds and then disperse them. So then they had brought the same cochineal that they had were native here. They had brought over there to try to help like as a biocontrol. To And I was like, this is, I'm half a world away. And there's this still same like little thing going on over here so and i was like because they're super they're prickly i probably still have little tiny cactus spines in me to this day but i'm like that's so cool that they're they're, they're microplastics they're microplastics <laughs> inside me <laughs> yeah they're like where are the microplastics they are in my skin in my hands in my feet in my legs everywhere in, soul. in the, my soul in my brain probably the um, gift that keeps giving truly <laughs> I like turn a, like one way and then I'm like, ah, and then I'm like, oh, one of them worked its way into the nerve again. Ha <laughs> um, But I'm like, oh, that'd be like a, cause I'm like, I don't know like what a good way to, to control, help control for some of these invasives would be. But like now they have another thing that they could do with it instead of just like throwing it away. It's like, oh, you can get like a, it's like a fun bonus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, there's, there's some stuff in the book about, and we cheated a little bit, right? We talked about fungi, which are not plants, but they're like plant adjacent. I don't know. They're like, I don't know. I think people lump them together a lot, which Mm -hmm. is why we thought it'd be interesting to talk about. Uh, But there's a a few companies making styrofoam replacements out of mycelium. So they're actually growing out the mycelium in in special warehouses and uh, they use it for a couple of different things. But instead of getting a styrofoam clamshell or a a protection for whatever it is that you order, uh, they're, they're made out of fungi. And then you can toss it again in your compost pile and it breaks down. And so there's, I don't know, so many cool things we can do just being a little bit creative. And I think if we think first, when, you know, I I think people like to have businesses and make money and come up with stuff and that's its own whole discussion and thing. But if our first thought a lot of times is, okay, how can we solve an environmental problem? And then if we can come up, replace a product that, is not great for the environment. And again, kind of solve multiple problems at the same time. I think, you know, we're in a cool place in our history where maybe in some ways things aren't great. In a lot of ways, things aren't great environmentally, but we're so connected. And I think there's so much will, especially in some of the the younger generations right now to solve some of these problems and come up with creative, cool ways to solve some of the problems that we're facing like that that gives me a lot of hope to think about. And and again, we were talking about this earlier, but as science communicators and climate communicators, and which I think we all should be as nature science communicators, the message we should send is not, uh, like you were saying earlier, Io, 
oh, you know, everything is inescapable and terrible. Well, no, there's solutions we can do. There's things we can do. Like we have power to make change. And that's something that like I want my son to understand and his generation to understand is that it's not hopeless, that we can do big things still. Uh, We just have to think about them differently. I think that's a great line to go out on. Vikram, thanks for coming on the pod today. The book is Plants to the Rescue, the Plants, Trees, and Fungi that are Solving Some of the World's Biggest Problems. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to y'all. Where can people find more of your stuff? I am for better or worse all over the internet uh, (laughs) as the plant prof. So you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook as well, even though I pretty much only get on to get on green memes, if we're being very honest. (laughs) And then the book's available at any online bookseller, pretty much anywhere you want to get it. Uh, You can you can buy it. Yeah. And you should. I appreciate that. I really do. And and you can my podcast is also called Planthropology. And uh, I've been on a hiatus, but I'm probably starting up here in October and it should be back at it. So you can support this podcast on our Patreon, patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Bio. I'm Curtis. And I'm Vikram. And happy Year of the Raccoon.